Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley with the Collector Car Podcast. We have another cool episode this week talking about cars a lot of us don't know about. A lot of the fabulous fiberglass cars from the 1950s. And to help me understand these cars a little bit more, I'd like to welcome Jeff Hacker and Guy Durkin. How are you guys doing? Hey, doing well. Good, Craig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And the reason I wanted to cover this topic, and it might be a, you know future topics, uh, some more episodes in the future for the podcast, is just it's a fascinating era of automotive history that a lot of folks don't know about. And it involves really cool special cars that are really kind of one-off, one-of-kind, one rare and special. So... I thought, Jeff, if you would, could you just kind of give us an overview of these cars in general? I know that's asking a lot, uh, but you're the expert. You run a website called Undiscovered Classics. And could you just give us kind of a 101 for some of my listeners that might not know more about the, or that would like to know more about these cars? Yeah, I'm working on a phrase kind of evolving it a bit. And I was with this morning with Guy Durkin a bit uh, also. And I, I used to say kind of comically, we specialize in finding cars no one's looking for, which kind of has a humorous and, and got you to laugh as well, which is funny. But but the actuality is that back in the day, these were the cars people were talking about. These were the cars that were the headlines in the shows, the Peterson Motorama shows, not General Motors, but Peterson, which was just as big. Uh, these were on the cover of magazines. In fact, um, I added up all the covers of magazines showing hand-built, handcrafted cars done by small companies or individuals, and that's really what we focus on. And there are more covers in the 1950s of magazines showing the cars that we study than there are cars of um, the Corvette and the Thunderbird, which came later in the 50s, but certainly were well-respected and very exciting for the public to see. So these were... These were the bomb. These were how exciting. These were the things that got your imagination going. These were, look what Detroit is building. I'm going to build a concept car, too. I'm going to build a sports car. I'm going to build a sporty car. I'm going to build, in some cases, a horrible car. <laughs> They're not all perfect, but I can remind your listeners, and, and Guy would agree, um, they're not all perfect out of Detroit either, aren't they? You know, we could name some hot, what were they thinking kind of cars, uh, which I love, by the way, out of Detroit, too. But not everyone was a winner, but far more were winners, like some of the ones we'll talk about later uh, than not. Um, we focused, we started this off 2007 um, with no mission. You know, we started off with the love of cars. My friend Rick DeLui and I, and Rick DeLui sadly passed a number of years ago. But um, we started off just being <clears throat> very excited, enthusiastic car guys. Um, I've always, I had Cadillac 
uh, Cadillacs when I was growing up, Cadillacs like ones you would pull out and restore from the 50s and 60s, not anything extravagant from the 30s, and other cars. Um, I still have a Kaiser Dragon, for example. But after a while, uh, some of us, maybe Greg is included, I certainly guy, uh, you start seeing the same cars at the shows, and you love them, but you start becoming an expert, not because you want to, but because you have to, and you don't see what, where are the new cars, where, and you start looking at Japanese cars, and you start looking at European cars, and well, what about American cars? Uh, what about hand-built American cars of original design? That's what was happening in the 50s. One-off or low-volume cars being built as a cottage industry, mostly in Southern California, but throughout the country. Um, in Chicago, there was a car called the Chicago, and it was a big hit in the 1954 Chicago Auto Show. And much to my surprise, the biggest car show for manufacturers in the 50s wasn't Detroit, but it was actually Chicago. That was the mm. premier uh, long-term, well-respected, and it still is today. <clears throat> so there were companies like Kaiser who would not show anything in Detroit, their Detroit show. They would show only at the Chicago Auto Show, which was a little further away. And that's where in 1954, our Chicago appeared along with other concept cars. Um, in Florida, there were some small manufacturers, but in the 60s, uh, there were a manufacturer out of St. Petersburg, Florida, called the Tiburon, or Covington Tiburon. And that's what I found when I was, oh, God, um, August something, 1980. That's how long I've had the car, because I keep looking at the bill of sale. It's the one we've taken to Amelia um, once or twice, Amelia Island Concours. And um, we we're honored to have that car. It's original design. It was on the cover of magazines as well, and then it disappeared. And, and that's the part, and I may ask Guy here to chip in uh, and speak to the forgotten part, because... That's the part that uh, is intriguing. These were top-notch, really famous, well-known cars that just disappeared. And it's like our knowledge of it for, in, in a car, car culture forgot. And then they became, they were kind of reintroduced as oddities uh, or weird. And they're not, I guarantee you, none of these designers said, you know what, I'm 50 years from now, I want, I want someone to find my car and think it's the weirdest thing they've ever seen. That's not how it came out. They actually were trying to design something for the era. And some of them, which we'll talk about later, like the Byers SR100, hit it out of the park. And others didn't. You know, I, I would never profess that cars and handcrafted are, are the bomb, are the thing that everyone should look for. But I also wouldn't profess that everything coming out of Detroit meets that same standard. <laughs> so you pick and choose. Um, you pick and choose the things that like you, to pick and choose the stories you want. And who doesn't like an, a story of an underdog, a guy in his garage who's going to build a car? Okay, I haven't vacuumed my house this year. When I do, and it's, what is it, June? I will celebrate when I do. I, these guys were building cars. I mean, I would have taken a million pictures and had a parade. That's the kind of stuff that these guys were doing way beyond my level. And that's what we're trying to capture, that um, that spirit, the enthusiasm, the skill level, the uh, the success that they had, even if they just did one car. It's, it can stand to the best. But, Guy, do you have anything about Because you talk to me a lot about both the rarity and the forgotten aspect. of. Yeah, uh, let me, I mean, you've said many things, and you also use a phrase that I use a lot, which is the mosaic, that prior to the late 1950s, there were indeed a lot of individual and small companies building race cars and sports cars. The, the 53 Corvette is an exception. The majority of sports and racing cars were built by small companies and individuals. Why, why did it get lost? It got lost because there wasn't a com comprehensive recording of the individuals who built those cars. Uh, one of the things, Jeff, I think that you contributed to the automotive genre 
is that you've put in 15,000 hours, and I'm not, I'm not pulling that number from nowhere. I'm probably literally estimating you put 15,000 hours of research in over the last 15 to 17 years to document and pull those pieces of the mosaic together. So now we have a picture. We have a picture of an entire car culture that started after the Second World War when, frankly, there were not American sports cars in general that existed. So it, it was dependent upon individuals to come back with those dreams, you know, the cars he'd seen in Europe, servicemen that came back. Um, it was also extremely time-consuming to build bodies out of aluminum and required a higher level of skill. So one of the coincident timing factors in the early 1950s was the beginning of the use of composite bodies, fiberglass. And I want to use, I'm stressing the word composite, because composite bodies are still used on race cars today and high-performance road-going vehicles. So in the early 50s, that made perfect logical sense to build a sports or a racing car out of fiberglass. And people did. And some people bought literally raw fiberglass woven roving mat and resin, and they set about making plaster of Paris molds in their backyard and built them. Others were more sophisticated. Uh, they were able to buy bodies from uh, small and emerging body manufacturers, but it was not a kit car. It, the kit car era was much later, late 50s and definitely into the 60s. Yeah. Mounting a drop-on body as a component on building a race or a sports car is quite difficult to do. We've found many unfinished bodies because of that level of difficulties. People bought the dreams. So I, I think, Jeff, if, if you're asking me to provide the context, we, we were playing around with, you know, we... We look for cars that nobody knows to look for. I think that's the issue is there is a legitimate reason to study and understand the presence of these cars in automotive history. But until very recently, thanks to your work, that has not been laid out in a comprehensive, coherent way. I'll pass that back to you, Greg, for now. Yeah, and, and a lot of good, a lot of great stuff there. And I did want to bring up the timing of the early 1950s. I know that there was a big influence from World War II. You know, the GIs were over there. They saw the two-seat little sports cars. They wanted something like that in the U.S. And I know also the in the creation of fiberglass. You know, that was a big deal when that occurred. Obviously, I think the Corvette. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. Was the first mass-produced fiberglass car. I know there were some earlier ones, but maybe from a pure volume That's standpoint. Right. Yeah, yeah, the Corvette was the first it. one. Yeah, the Cor There's some debate <clears throat> if you're talking about fiberglass, Greg, or you're talking about American sports car. Because there's some discussion about the um, what is it? The, the Nash Healy is being America's first. Yeah, no, I was thinking more of yeah the fiberglass, how that yep. hit mainstream, you know, from yeah. a large manufacturing perspective. Yeah, um, uh, I guess be Corvette. Corvette and um, the actual timeline of Kaiser Darren folks are out there is the Kaiser Darren announced first they made 435 fiberglass cars. They were produced just after the Corvette became available. So you have Kaiser Darren for people wanting to love the details. Kaiser Darren made the announcement first, and then Corvette a few months later, and then Corvette came out first, and Kaiser Darren second. 
but it's all right. small things. So Yeah. So now how about from a manufacturing perspective? I know, you know, these cars can be from one guy in his garage creating the bodies. What's the scope? What's who was like maybe one of the larger mm-hmm. manufacturers of these? Was it a hundred cars? Was it a hundred and fifty cars? Was it twenty cars? Like what what kind of from the one guy to the large kind of brand, what what's the scope we're looking at here? Uh, I'll start and Guy will have – well, actually, Guy, you start because I'll, I'll, I'll fill in all the details. Why don't you uh, name a two no, or three my, that you – In starting into this, Jeff, I think yeah. Greg's question is extremely important. Okay. What would be your estimate of the total number of small company and individual cars built between 1950 and the late 1950s? Um, I love that question because it seems – insurmountable how do you get at that in 2005 or 6 and uh it seems an impossible thing to and that's why i started 2005 or 6 and the answer is most of these guys were alive when bill burke who in his 90s actually I talked to merrill powell from victor's last night he's 91 uh guy has a car uh victor's as well we just talked to the builder of that car a few weeks ago he's 97 i think or 98 wow. i mean these i don't know fiberglass seems to have made people live longer <laughs> a lot of them have passed away since i had a chance to ask them all because they I, I love the question i had with bill burke bill burke is the father of the belly tank and we built a replica belly tank you'll see it in the book that you have Greg. it's number one that we built we built um bill guided us to build a recreation of the first belly tank streamliner to hit the salt flats which uh, was el mirage and so forth out in the uh, out west dry the salt flats so I asked Bill, I said, well, you built these cars later called Allied Swallows, the coupes, and I had one or two, and, and there were larger versions. How many did you made? I have no idea how I made. Oh, well, then it goes into kind of uh, interviewing, you know, just interviewing skills, and when you're talking to people, to get the information out you need. Oh, so you could build, like, you must have built 500. 500? There's no way we built 500. Well, you built more than one. How many could you build in a week? Eh, maybe one or two. I said, but, you know. There's the surf out there. Did you guys go surfing? Did you guys go drinking? He said, no, we, we didn't build, you build four or five a month. He said, oh, maybe two or three a month. Well, how long did it last? Okay, those kinds of estimates, because Bill was still very articulate at the time. And then we find things like we found on Victor's um, um, sale, like 125. This is the 125th body built in 1953 and so forth. And we have access to all the employees that are still around. And the answer is carefully crafted interview looking for ways in which things might be distorted just by time and we estimated that the body manufacturers okay people glass par victress wood and wildfire and so forth the ones that made not the jeff hacker special like one or the greg stanley special or the guy durkin but ones that were making with advertisements that could produce bodies and so forth if you add all those up you come up with less than 800 bodies ever produced from 52 to 59 and then it gets more interesting is 800 bodies is not 800 cars is it Right. So let's say that there's a wild 50% survival rate. Um, oh, not even, uh, we could go different ways. Let's say that 50% of those bodies were made into cars, okay? It's 800 to 4. Actually, let's go to 1,000. Let's overestimate. <clears throat> so 1,000 bodies became 500 cars. Guy, does that sound reasonable? 1,000 cars yes. became, 1,000 bodies became 500 cars. Reasonable, By the way, that, opti- I think reasonable but optimistic. optimistic. Yes. It's more like two or three. So I'm, what I'm yeah. doing is I want to show you the point the guy's making, which is rarity. So we're going to say 1,000 bodies, 500 cars. All right, so how many cars were made well, guy? Half? That's 15%, an over- 15% of the okay. bodies ever built. Okay, so, all right, so 15% is guys. I'm going to overestimate too. I'm going to say half of the cars built were built well. 
Is that right, guy, or not? They're half well, the price. No, I'm, following, I'm following the logic. But All right, so I'm overestimating. I'm like crazy. So yeah. we start with a thousand, go to five hundred cars. Five hundred cars were built. Two hundred and fifty were built well. Now, built well by our standards today, not built well by their standards today. They they would have actually more. They had stick welder. A lot of people look at the welds made back then, and they they're like, how could they do that? It's all they had. I remember asking more than one person, how did you cut the frame? You know, what did you use? What kind of, well, we got a hacksaw out. It took us most of a week to cut the frame down with a hacksaw. Wow. Yeah, right. That was not yeah. unusual. That's so, so these were not for the faint of heart. These were, took a lot of effort. And if 500 became 250 built nice, how many have survived 70 years later? Because up until recently, I, I had 120 of them. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about rarity. And so, and, and remember, I overestimated it every step. And sometimes I, I think Guy and I get off track. These are really, really rare cars. And in some cases, not all cases, they're valuable cars, um, particularly if they're designed nicely and built nicely and restored nicely. But um, these are super, super, rare. you don't see them at a show. If you have one, you'll be the only one at a show. Uh, I'm yeah. famous here in Tampa. People driving by my house. I have them out front of my house and also in storage. And every, no one knows who lives in the yellow house on Memorial Highway, but uh, they certainly know my cars out front. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, I think that you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that we've been very pleasantly surprised about is the invitations to top shows. I mean, you've been to Pebble Beach three times. Um, two times, and then our car I sold to a friend and a customer. He took it right from yeah. our, our showroom and right out to Pebble Beach, which was and so we, and yeah. Amelia Island most years. Oh, I yeah. But it, yeah. It's because the cars are different. <laughs> they are ultra rare, but they're different. It's, it, you know, I can only look at so many 66 Mustang Shelbys, you know, yeah. and so on. Anyway, and I don't want to, I love I love Mustang Shelby's, by the way. Yeah. And I've, I have had Shelby's, but I actually own five Mustangs as I was growing up. So the yeah. last one was a Celine that you could have rented at John Wayne Airport. Like it was called the Celine B from Budget Rental. I love those, but uh, wow. you see too many of them is the problem for us. You know, right, actually. right. Now, I guess my next question would be, so let's take, I, I do want to get into a specific car, specifically your buyers. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we get to that point, so let's say we have, uh, you know, someone, a Victress, and they made 100 bodies. Would it always go on the same uh, drivetrain, or would it be up to the owner? Like, how did that work out? Because obviously they're not making drivetrains. And I know, like, Guy, in your example, in your buyers, which we'll get to a minute here, you have a really great 56 Corvette engine in yours, which is really cool. But what was that process? So they buy the, you know, they buy the body, and they want to make a really nice car. What would be the let, next step? Let me take the first part of that guy, and then I'm going to hand it off to you, okay? Yeah. But uh, you'll see what I'm going to say. Um, with all of the companies that produce bodies, they all gave you a choice of chassis. Uh, almost all, and yeah, actually all of it. I could speak to each one individually. It would be very boring. Each one built different chassis. A company called Curtis, which uh, in the 40s and early 50s was the royalty of um, American road racing. Uh, road racing, Indianapolis you know, racing. Uh, built a chassis called the KK500, and it helped standardize everything at 99-inch wheelbase, which is about the size of a Corvette, and companies aligned their cars to that in 1954. So you had choices to buy. I'm going to hand it to you a second about the build part guy, but, but buy. But you could also, it was more than one company producing chassis, and the I would say maybe half of them went for buying the chassis that were available 
when they bought the, the uh, body. But there was a very interesting reason that I wanted to share, and then it'll be short. Um, when I was working with Frank Hecox, uh, and he was, um, that's a new name to Guy. He must have been 90-something. He was an employee for Glass Bar. Um, he was explaining to me that um, when they were starting to sell glass bars in early 1952, the banks would not give loans to buy a, a body. And they needed to come up with a chassis so that banks could loan money for a body-chassis combination, which was closer to something we call a car. So banks were having a harder time doing it, which I'd never heard since or be, you know, before or since. He was the only one who talked about this. But one of the reasons to come up with a chassis from a company perspective was you could build a full car with any of these companies. Most didn't. But you could buy a body and a chassis, or you could do what I'll hand it over to Guy is, do what, um, build something yourself. So, Guy? Yeah, Greg, I know this is, uh, we, we need to transition to the buyers soon, but I also own a Victress, as Jeff pointed out. It was built by Fred Bodley, the technical editor of Motor Trend. Fred co was uh, co-owned a business as a Rolls-Royce mechanic. So the Victress that I have was built on a modified 1940s Ford chassis, Ford flathead, Ford gearbox, Ford rear end. Uh, he had to cut down the chassis length and made some adjustments to get the wheel brace under the body. That car is a time capsule of the way things were built in 1953-54, including the ugly stick welding, which oh, we at yeah. one point debated, should we grind it down and make it look pretty, but we decided we would leave it exactly the way it was. Right. So that's probably an example of the economic way to build a car. When people build custom, built custom chassis from raw steel or modified other cars to go under the same model. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's really great. That's a nice little overview. And I feel like, you know, we've given the listeners a little bit of a snapshot as far as what these cars are, why they came about, who made them, just, you know, overviews. And obviously I want to give a plug, Jeff, to your website, undiscoveredclassics.com, correct? Correct. Okay. Yep. Because you have a wealth of information by model, by body style, whatever. You've got a ton of information if people want to dig more into that. Now, I do want to move on to the buyer's car. Now, the buyer's, it's a 1956 SR125 buyer's. That guy is actually selling at RM Sotheby's June sale, which is occurring here shortly. I believe it's June 23rd till June the 30th. So you can go to rmsotheby's.com and check it out. And I'm going to pull up a picture here. So if you've always listened to me via a podcast, you can go to uh, you can go to YouTube and you can check out this in person and you can see what we're talking about here. Now, I will have to say this buyer's is absolutely stunning and gorgeous. If I had to compare it to a car, I would honestly take it to an early early 50s Ferrari Barchetta. Uh, it's got the egg crate grill. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, this one in particular is a beautiful blue with uh, twin uh, silver racing stripes and gray interior. So, Guy, could you just tell us more about this particular car and what makes it interesting in the world of Undiscovered Classics? Yeah, sure, I will. And I'll use this as an example as well from you know, extend on from the previous conversation. Uh, so when I bought this car, it, had been, it was built in period in the late 1950s. Um, it was probably built on the lower end of the technical spectrum. It, like a, some of these cars had plywood flooring, for example. Um, this car originally had a Ford chassis that intruded into the seating area, so you would end up sitting on top of the chassis, and that's actually common with some of these cars. You tend to look a bit like a Shriner, 
and uh, I'm six foot uh, three, so that was difficult for me. Um, this car is powered by a 1956 265 small block Chevrolet engine. It's going through an M21 four-speed transmission into a Ford rear end with limited slip differential. I originally built the car to go vintage racing. And once it was put together, it was so gorgeous that I was very reluctant to actually put this car on the track. Uh, there are two roll hoops that come with the car. One goes is asymmetric, so it would be for driver protection only as a forward tube that gets bolted to a flat plate in the passenger seat area. Currently, as you see, if, uh, if you go to the pictures to look at uh, on, on YouTube, you can, you can see that there are two round circles, which is where you would remove the roll hoop from. Uh, I, in changing this to a track car, for safety reasons and to meet vintage race regulations, I did change the rear of the suspension to a four-link. Um, this is a very, very flat driving car. And I, Greg and I have had conversations as if you wanted an absolutely original period car, this is probably not the one to buy. But if you want a car that is built in, was built in period, that has a high level of drivability. This is a fantastic car. It really corners well. Uh, we kept the tire size exactly the same as matching uh, vintage race car rubber. Should one wish to switch this and go vintage racing, you could do that. Um, I could think of some other details. This is one of the few that actually has the original Corvette windshield, which fires... Jim Byers, when he made the fiberglass bodies for these cars, made a mounting surface to fit that windshield. So a lot of cars of the era, you know, you kind of, the windshield became an afterthought. This looks like it should be in place. Um, those are the things that come to mind. I probably missed a whole bunch. But <laughs> yeah, and I... Uh... I apologize. Okay. I said a uh, SR125. Is that SR100, correct? Yeah, SR. So, um, Jeff, was that a street roadster? SR, and then a 100-inch yeah. wheel. I had to think about it for a second, right, because they did a CR also, competition. So, yeah. SR, street the, roadster. The 100, the 100 depicts sports, the wheel. Or, or sports roadster. We have to go back. Sports roadster, either. yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, to a couple of other notes about the car, the a Byers was featured on the cover of Road and Track magazine, February 1957. And in writing up the article, John Bond, who is the editor, asked the question, is this the, most, is this the world's most beautiful sports car? So whether we can, we can sit here and debate that question for quite a while, given the era, it's clearly one of the more attractive cars of the 1950s. Um, I'm reluctant to sell it, but I'm getting to the point where I'm, I've got more cars than, than I have space. And I, and as we've, you've probably heard many times from other people. Anyway, Greg, did I miss anything? That... No, you know, I think that's, it's a four-speed, correct? Four-speed, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's ready to run, obviously. I mean, like I said, it's a gorgeous two-seat Roadster. Um, and like I said, if I had to compare it to anything, it would have been an early 50s Ferrari and uh, you got the Corvette 265. That's a quad, two quad carbs, correct? 
No, this one is a it's a 500 CFM carburetor. I don't like to overcarburate uh, engines. The engine in this car would need to be changed to a race engine. Uh, we could discuss that with future owner. I happen to have one. All right. <laughs> um, but um, I've been behind in my race at ET1 car. I've been behind a Devon with a similar layout to this. These cars with 500 horsepower go 170 miles an hour. Wow. Um, so bear that in mind if you are thinking of converting this to a vintage race car. Right, right. Okay, yeah, and as I said before, if someone's interested in this car, they can go to armsotheby's.com and check it out. It's there live right now. Fitting starts on the 23rd. Jeff, any other comments about this car? And I did want you to just touch base on maybe the three cars that you took to Amelia Island uh, just to give a little snapshot as far as some of the other makes that are out there. Part of what – let me – there are two things I want to add and Guy can chip in. Most of your, most of your viewers have never seen a buyer's SR100. Guy, how, why, is, why have most of them not seen a buyer's SR100 before? Yeah, good question. So mine is one of the Jim Byers woven roving uh, original shelves, of which he made 25 bodies. And all buyers, and some were made by other companies with top strand matting later on, we're estimating there's probably only 10 in the world and only one or two, and I would consider mine probably the best, but only one or two of a high level of restoration. Yeah, very, very few. There's one hanging out in Japan somewhere, I think, and I've not been able to track it down. They did ship bodies. You know, I, I knew some of the employees were buyers, and they did ship bodies to other countries. And there's a, a restored one in Japan, a silver one, which I, I don't know the language. I can't reach them. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, there were, there were th- like 10 complete running, driving cars that we know of approximately? 10 or, 10 or less, and that's what we've agreed on for the option statistics. Right, yeah. right. Okay, yeah, yeah. super rare. Which, and buyers did make another car called the CR90, which is very Devon-esque or Ferrari-esque, you know, however, or at Arini-esque, whichever you want to do. They're all Italian. His, and it's a beautiful car, and it's very rare. But you'll see the buyer CR90 out there, too. You, They are different cars, different wheelbases, different tracks and such. Um, the only other thing I'd like to add in 60 seconds or less is the story and the story about a buyers is the best story in terms of who built it in the 50s. And the reason is it's Jim Byers, because Jim started out working with Victris. Now, Victris was one of the founding companies, 1952. And he worked with Doc Boysmith to create the first Victris S1. It's a car that Guy has and a few other people have. I have one or two. But that was the very early car, a very beautiful car. And then Jim, with his experience, met Dick Jones, who created the Meteor in 53. And in 1953, the... Um, when they built the Meteor, they debuted it at the Peterson Automotive, um, the Peterson Motorama, which was in Pan Pacific Auditorium, Los Angeles. And they just barely got the car done, and they put a tonneau cover of it, and you could see the structure underneath it, but it's a, it was actually in the magazines and so forth, and it was very Byers-esque. And then in 55, um, Dick Jones, who designed the Meteor and built it with Jim Byers, left to Colorado and Jim formed his own company, which carried him through the 60s. So Jim has got the longest footprint in any of the 50s. You talk about who are the big names. Jim would be the biggest, uh, Jim Byers, in terms of company, breadth, and experience, and uh, respect, and uh, success in all different levels. So it's nice to have that. If you don't know the history of the fiberglass cars, this is 
or handbill cars. This is one of the top guys. Right, right. Okay. No, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, if you would, could you touch base just on the cars that were at Amelia? I know I looked at the Maverick pretty closely. That was pretty cool. Uh, what other cars were there? Well, uh, we started out as Forgotten Fiberglass years ago, and two of the cars that were out there were fiberglass, and one was steel. Uh, we brought three, which I think under our umbrella this year. Uh, we brought the Maverick Sportster, which my co-owner friend Tom Chandler and his family brought. It was about a seven-year restoration. And it's a beautiful. It's a car that is um, got 123-inch or 127-inch wheelbase. It's, on a, it's a special body Cadillac, just like you'd see coming out of um, Fogoni and Falashi, or if I'm pronouncing it, I can never pronounce that right. I wish they'd come up with <laughs> a, a shorthand. <laughs> I wish they'd come up with a Nike swoosh so I could just say something. So, but you have special body Cadillacs coming out of Europe, and a couple here maybe in Durham, and, but we had very little coach building going on in the post era. Um, and this is a special body Cadillac, and it came with uh, the approval of the drivetrain and chassis from Cadillac directly. And they built seven back in the day. When we started researching, we found there was one in existence. And by the time, well, as of today, there are three in existence. And I owned two of them, and now I own half of that one and still the other. <laughs> um, but couldn't be ple- more pleased with Tom's success. Tom won an award called the Buddy Palumbo Award. Uh, for our car, but you know the, the reward will reside with him in his excellent job. Um, if you are showing things to the, to, you, sh- you should share the press release. Amelia did a beautiful job at uh, putting out a press release for the car. Uh, they called it a French Boulevardier car, Boulevardier car, which was a, a kind of a grand, sporty, big, large luxury car, which was accurate. Second one was the Widow Wildfire from a movie called Johnny Dark. Um, we have a. Our affinity is all these hand-built cars. Woodhill built about 100 cars. We tracked down Woodhills and restored two or three already. And this is the latest one we restored with its new owner, Jack Farr, who is going to go to a museum of his in Crescent, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas. And the Woodhill Wildfire is often called the first production fiberglass sports car. People will throw around all different titles. Basically, there were the only production fiberglass sports cars were Kaiser Darren and Corvette because there are no two widows alike. There's no two glass bars. Every engine change, every frame change, every body change, every carbon. You couldn't, everything was custom or bespoke, whichever you want to use. So the production cars really reside with, with General Motors and Kaiser, Kaiser Darren. So the, uh, but they did make 100, and it was in movies, and the most famous movie of the 50s was Johnny Dark, and we released a 150-page book you can view online for free, all about the Johnny Dark movie with Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie. And it contains... Um, the main race of the movie is eight cars, and one of them is a Woodhill Wildfire, which this one is part of its legacy. It was stolen in the movie and became the race car, and yeah, we wow. found it in Sacramento on Craigslist about 2014, and then brought it back here and started the restoration and found a new owner who took it from there, and um, and that was it's a really cool car. And in, in in black, it's actually kind of low slung, and it looked it came out very nice. Um, black is such a hard color. Yeah. And it came out really, really nice. And then the third car makes me smile every time. I've had to say, I saw you briefly at Amelia a few weeks ago, right there at my car called the Fraser Custom. And the 1954 Fraser Custom was a custom-built steel car. And about a third of my cars are steel or aluminum. So forgotten fiberglass may be where we start, but it's really more undiscovered classics where all these hand-built cars, they're, um, you know, we, we, we find a lot of steel now. We go after steel, but we, we don't forget the fiberglass either. So it's all it's all good, but the Fraser Custom is a fully custom car, built in '54. God knows how it survived. It probably survived because it was ignored for all these years. Right. Um, my friend Mike Barker found it, but I was searching for the car ten years. Mike could have told me any time during that ten years he had the car. He never did, and um, 
finally a couple years, I don't know, about five years ago, he saw, oh, I have that car. Of course, I never told him I was looking for it. And uh, we brought it here and gave it a, a restoration mechanically with JR Speed Shop down in um, Venice, Florida. And we kept the patina on it, which uh, is kind of cool. I don't know how long the patina will last. It's pretty old. But right. we may have to restore it, or the new owner may have to restore it someday. Most of our cars can be bought. You know, I can't keep on to everything. I have no desire to be the largest car owner. You know, my, the, new, <laughs> the new Jeff Hacker Stadium, the whole, no, I don't want any of that. Um, my job is caretaker ambassador. Guy's job with all of this is caretaker ambassador. And there's nothing, the only thing better than taking a own car to a show like Amelia Island and doing all the hard work to show why this car is important and why this car is beautiful and why it should be saved is finding a new owner for it. Right. And it's like, because what does that do? It allows me to go out and save another one and do the same thing over and over again. But like I alluded to, 15,000 hours, you know, I, I would. I would choose a different thing if I were trying to just make money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really would. It is a labor of love for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But we do need to wrap up our time together. And I did give you a heads up. There's a little game I like to play at the end here. So, Guy, I'm going to start with you. So, okay. as, as I said before, this is a game called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I'll give you three cars. You have to pick one to keep forever, one to cash in, and then one to unfortunately send to the crusher. Now, I did not want to pick Undiscovered Classics. I thought that would be a little bit too painful. But I did want to pick fiberglass cars. So for both of you, I'm going to pick some fiberglass cars. Now, Jeff, based on what I picked for Guy, you'll probably be able to figure out yours before I even say them. But we'll give it a shot here. So here are your three cars. Guy, you ready? Yep. You look like you got your pen and paper ready here. I have. (laughs) All right. So the first one is an original Myers-Manx dune buggy. Mm Mm-hmm. The next one is one that was mentioned earlier, the Kaiser Darren. I'm a big fan of those cars. They have the unique sliding door into the front fender, which nobody you never see that anywhere else. And then the third car is a Marcos, a three-liter Marcos. Okay, and I know well, you got the answer. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I know you'll like that car. So those are the three cars. You have to pick one to keep cash and crush. You have the Myers-Manx, the Kaiser Darren, and the Marcos, the three-liter one. So how are you going to go forward? It was forward? very easy to crush oh, the Myers-Manx. Oh. <laughs> um, I would cash out on the, Di- the, Ka- the Kaiser. Okay. And I would keep the Marcus because when I lived in England, I would drive my 3000M to work. And another guy coming the other way every day in a Marcus would wave to we would wave to each other, and I've always liked those cars, so that's easy. Well, can you fit in that car? Uh, probably not without moving the firewall. But... <laughs> okay, it's worth it though, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I made that one a little too easy on you. So the Myers makes you would crush, you would keep the Kaiser Darren, which are pretty strong in the marketplace right now, and you would keep. The Marcos, right? Let me add, let me add something to that. Yeah, cashing out the Kaiser would be a good thing right now. Yeah. Let me add, let me add something first. Can I do that, Greg? Yeah. The first ten uh, Myers Banks were um, not the normal Myers Banks, and so um, a couple of my friends own them. They're actually probably more valuable than the other two combined. Oh yeah, but the first first run. Ah, you know of them. Okay, good. They're, I mean, what are they called? They're, they're not, they don't use the whole, uh, Bruce was a friend. I, I've known him, but everyone knows Bruce. He's passed away, sadly, a few, not too long ago. But um, they, they were, um, they used components and they, composite body was, um, it was like John Bucci's car uh, guy. It was uh, very thick fiberglass. You could, it, it was structural. 
So those, mm-hmm. I think he made 10, and they're worth like a ridiculous amount of money, each of those. I'd actually crush the Kaiser Darren. There's oh, you would, huh? Oh, in a second. There's 435. <laughs> I would take all the parts, give them out for free to other people. <laughs> okay, well, fun. you know what? I'm changing my list for you based on guys. <laughs> so let's try yours out here. I'm changing it right now. Oh, the Marcus I would have kept. That much just guy's surprise, by the way. Much to guy's surprise. That's funny. All right, so here are your three. You get, all right, let me get this right here. Well, now you're making me change them even more. All right, so I'm <laughs> going to change it here. Your first one's an Alpine A110. Okay. Nice little French car. Your second one is the TVR Griffith. Okay. Now, see, all of these are going to have over 400 made, probably. Uh, and then your third one is going to be the first-gen Ferrari 308 fiberglass. I pitched that. What is that called? The, fr- the yeah, it's like a sold. Yeah, no, I've seen it before. Yeah. yeah, I mean that would be the one to sell. I don't know what they go for. Um, and the other two, I, I, um, I, I would crush the TVR. <laughs> oh, it's a tiny, yeah, I crush the TVR. The other one is interesting. Well, there's a lot of TVRs out there. All the TVR guys would actually, they're like, they're, if I would crush the TVR, there's all become more expensive, right? So they would all. It so all you're take doing me. them a favor by crushing their favorite car. I hate to be the good guy all the time. Yeah, but the, <laughs> but the um, the interesting thing about the Alpine thing is is Willie's Willis made the the uh, same damn car in Brazil. Are you familiar with that called the Interlagos? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure if Guy is, uh, but the Alpine, no. very racy car, was done down in Brazil called the Interlagos. And I couldn't believe it says Willis Interlagos. That would be the one I would keep. That's the super rare one. Yeah. We if actually had sweet, one of those yeah. at an auction recently, one of the South American ones, which is pretty cool. Very, very rare and very interesting name. And, and it's it's rare that a car. But anyway, those are the, the, the TDR Griffith. I, w- I would choose to make all the other TDR Griffiths more expensive by crushing it. <laughs> I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I did have a Corvette in there, a C2 Corvette, but I had to yank that quickly because there's like thousands of those. So, um, all right. Well, thank, yeah. thank you so much for your time today, guys. As a reminder, you can check out Guy's Car at rmsouthbeast.com right now. And then if you want to check out more Undiscovered Classics, go to undiscoveredclassics.com. And thanks, guys, for your time today. Thanks, Jay. Super. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.